The scripture for today is Psalms 2, verses 1 through 8. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in the wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you. As for me, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your procession. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Hopefully you're doing well uh, on this Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully your summer has started out uh, on, on, a, on, a, on the right foot. I know for me and my family, uh, my wife's a teacher, and so we just on Friday entered into uh, summer break. Um, hopefully you, if you're not, you're like, don't remind me. Uh, it's, it's coming soon. And if you're already there, hopefully parents, you're not like, what have we done? Um, or anything like that. But uh, hopefully you guys are off to a good start there. For me and my wife, uh, Memorial Day weekend is always a special time because it is uh, where we celebrate our wedding anniversary. And so we just celebrated four years, which was uh, great. And so, yeah, yeah, thanks for the little bit of encouragement there. Um, my name is Stephen Collins. Uh, I usually am up here leading the music. I'm a pastoral resident, which means I kind of do a little bit of everything, but typically you'll, you'll see me up here leading the music. And so one thing, uh, one thing I don't think that's a coincidence, I guess, is Dave wanted me to introduce the book of Psalms. And so uh, I guess that's what you have the worship leader do is uh, give the introduction to the songbook in the Bible. And uh, I'm thankful, though, for all of us that it's not a prerequisite to have like skinny jeans, craft coffee, and, you know, craft beer, be in your room or up on a mountaintop playing the guitar to get something out of Psalms. I'm also thinking we don't need, like, a beard to do that or else I'm in trouble because I'm perpetually looking 14. Uh, so you're like, how old is this guy? I'm like, I'm just going to keep you guessing. Um, but seriously, some of you guys in the room are like, dang it, Psalms, like... Isn't that like women's ministry stuff? Uh, and I'm just going to tell you right now, no. Um, the book of Psalms has kind of been uh, relegated to that, and uh, we're here to get it back and say we love women's ministry, but the Psalms are too great to be stuffed into one corner. And guys, you love poetry, and you don't even know it yet. Um, and you're like, no, I don't. Uh, and I'm like, yes, you do. If you like anything from Metallica to Jay-Z, from like Blake Sheldon all the way to Bon Iver, that's all poetry. You like poetry, now just deal with it. Uh, that's what's going on there. You just don't know it yet. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to be in this, guys. And, and just a, a heads up, where we're going this morning... We're going to start heavier on the information side of things, really laying a framework of what the book of Psalms is all about. We're going to be looking from like 10,000 feet up, getting the big picture, and then we're going to kind of descend into a couple themes that the Psalms talk about. I'm excited about it, and we're going to be in Psalms basically to the end of August. So we're going to be spending the summer in the Psalms. I'm excited about it. And... Uh, uh, Let's just get to it. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can uh, raise your hand. We want to get one into your hands. we got people that will be handing those out. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 2. If you don't know where that's at, um, basically go to the table of contents. Look for the book of Psalms. If you don't know where that's at, just come to the middle. Odds are you're going to get there. It's a big book in the center of it. And so people are going to be handing out Bibles. Keep your hands up. If you don't own a Bible, we wanna, this is a gift to you. We want to make sure everyone has 
a Bible that they can read, they can study. And if you have questions on that, we'd love to answer them for you. If you need a Bible in Spanish, just indicate so, and we'll get you one there as well. So let me pray for us, because my words are nothing without the Holy Spirit uh, uh, moving, shaping, guiding us, guiding me, and preparing our hearts. So let me pray for us for that, and pray... Thanks that God's word does not return void. It shapes us, it moves us, it pierces our hearts, it exposes us, and it, and it molds us to be the people of God. So let me pray to that end. God, I pray that you would bless this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use it. I pray that you would be glorified in it. Lord, I pray that you would use me, use these words uh, on a sheet. They're not going to change anybody unless you move, unless you act, unless you are working in people's hearts. I pray that you would use me in this time. Lord, I pray that people would have a deeper hunger for the book of Psalms and they would understand more deeply how they are to relate with you, God. I pray to this end in your name. Amen. So to, to start where we're going is we got to get a framework for the book of Psalms. So the word Psalms is, comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. And that's because the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs, poems, and prayers. And what's unique about the Psalms is they're written by multiple people. You have David who wrote about half of them. You even have Solomon and Moses. And you have Asaph and a few other authors. And about a third of them are anonymous. And, and what the book of Psalms is at its core, guys, it, it serves as a songbook and a prayer book for the people of God. But what we can't miss about the book of Psalms is the reality that there's kind of two parts to the authorship. So take Psalm 51, for example. Uh, David, a particular person, King David, you might remember David and Goliath, King David, that uh, person in the Bible, he wrote Psalm 51 at a particular time after Nathan confronted him of his sin of adultery and murder. And what we get in Psalm 51 is David's response of repentance. And it's beautiful, it's great, it's one of the most popular psalms around, and we're going to go through it in a few weeks. But... What's important to know is David didn't title it Psalm 51. It wasn't like he wrote 50 and this was his 51st. No, what theologians believe and what church history tells us is that centuries later, likely when Israel was defeated by Babylon and they were in exile away from Jerusalem, away from the promised land, living in a strange foreign land in exile, people inspired by the Holy Spirit compiled all of these songs and poems and prayers and put them in a particular order to communicate a particular message. And what we have is like a patchwork quilt, which even this piece of art almost has hints of, a patchwork quilt. It, we're getting a millennia, a thousand years from Moses to the exile, a, a history of Israel's prayers and songs to their God. And that's what the book of Psalms is. And with this framework in mind, we can dive in. We can dive into a couple themes. And so if you're taking notes, I just got three points, and here's where we're going today. One, the Psalms teach us about the story of God. Two, the Psalms teach us about the character of God. And three, the Psalms teach us about how we are to relate with God. So let's get to it. Number one, the Psalms teach us about the story of God. I said a second ago that the compilers of the book of Psalms organized it in a particular way to communicate a particular message. And when we recognize the structure of the Psalms, we start to understand the meaning of the book of Psalms a little clearer. And I'll say its message is profound, but it's familiar. 
And, and, and the book of Psalms, don't miss this, is, is really five books. And you'll see it, even as you look at your Bible, right before Psalm 1 it says book 1. Because there's five books, in, or five chapters almost, if you will, to the book of Psalms. And, and right out of the gate, there's almost a kind of introduction, uh, theologians tell us, and church history tells us. Um, and we know this because book 1 is authored completely by David, except for Psalms 1 and 2. And that's significant. Psalms 1 and 2 almost serve as a signpost saying, hey, listen up. This is what this entire book is about. So we got to start there. Psalm 1, we're talking about it next week, so just real quick, is all about the reality that blessed is the person who delights and meditates and obeys the law or obeys the Torah as Israel called it. And it's critical to understand when the Bible talks about the law, when the Bible talks about the Torah, it's not talking about just ten, the Ten Commandments or a list of instructions, let's say, in the book of Leviticus. It's talking about the entire first five books of the Bible. So creation, the garden, fall, Abraham, the covenants, the exodus, the deliverance, the, the promises, the blessings, all of this fits into what the Bible calls the law. And Psalm 1, serving as an introduction to the book, said, Blessed is the one who meditates and remembers the whole work of God, the whole word of God, the whole Torah of God, and obeys it. Psalm 1 is all about Torah, all about the word. And Psalm 2, which is what we just read about, we're going to read the whole thing together this time. It says this, the title of Psalm 2, so if you have your Bibles there, follow along with me. If not, it's up on the screen. It's titled, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. And it says this, again, this is a signpost saying, again, Torah, the word, and now this is saying what the book of Psalms is all about. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 talks all about the character in Psalm 2 is this anointed one, which just translates to Messiah or Christ, depending on what language you're in. So this Messiah, is, is, it says, will rule over all nations, thus fulfilling the promise that God made to David, that one of his offspring would rule an everlasting kingdom, and his promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. And we see that in the psalm, the nations conspire and they oppose God, and what does God do? He laughs. I love that. I love that. God laughs. No one can stand up to God and his Messiah. He rules. He reigns. He has the victory. And he laughs at his opposition. And guys, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, we know who this Messiah, who this Christ, who this anointed one is. It's Jesus. 
And what we see in Psalm 2 that we might not catch on first glance is notice the language of son and king and Messiah all wrapped up in this person in Psalm 2. That's Jesus. The Son, the King, the Messiah. And we're told in Psalm 2 that we're to take refuge in this King, to bow before this Son, and to wait for His kingdom when all the nations will bow and worship. Sound familiar? Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus is Lord. The Psalms are about Jesus. And in these introductory Psalms, they tell us what the Psalms are all about. Torah and Messiah, the Word and the Christ. And the people of God are told to meditate on the Torah and wait for the promised Messiah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? That's our call today. That's what the whole scriptures are about, is obey God's word and wait for God's anointed one, wait for the Messiah to come. See, the psalm's central message is not divorced from the thesis of scripture. In fact, it's at the very center of it. Obey the word, wait for the Messiah. Obey the word, wait for the kingdom. I think that's awesome. I love that. That's what the book of Psalms is all about. Very familiar, but very profound. And this point's all about that the Psalms teach us about the story of God. The message is not just central, but we hit on every single chapter and act of the story of God in the Psalms. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Tim Keller explains. The Psalms gives an overview of salvation history from creation through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the establishment of the tabernacle and temple, the exile due to unfaithfulness, and it points us forward to the coming messianic redemption and the renewal of all things. See, Psalm 148 declares that, that all of creation, sun, moon, stars, angel, angels, rulers, kings, that all of creation should bow before the Lord, praise the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Genesis 1 and 2. The Psalms are littered with pleas and cries and prayers and petitions that are, are saying things are not the way they ought to be. The psalmist is deeply in tune with the effects of sin and the fall. You see this littered throughout the Psalms. And the Psalms talk about that one day God will wipe away our sins. He will blot out our transgressions. He will purge the world of evil. And we know who's the one who did that? Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid for sin. He's the one who purged uh, the effects of uh, the curse and will one day, as the Psalms talk about, make all things new. In beautiful language, it talks about in Psalm 98 that one day all the earth will know God's salvation, that the rivers will clap, that, that the hills will sing, the sea will roar in praise. The entire created order will bow and worship and praise its creator. And why are they doing it? Psalms 98 says, because the Lord has come to judge the world with righteousness and equity. It says things one day will be made right. That's good news, amen? amen. See, the, the Psalms teach us about the story of God, and it's amazing. It's amazing. Its messages are, are, are harmonious with the message of Scripture. It's amazing. But don't miss this. I, when, 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 when I was doing some preparation for this, this struck me probably more than anything else as I was preparing. See, it could be argued that the Psalms are presented as a new five-book Torah teaching the people of God 
how they are to pray and relate with God. A new five-book Torah teaching the people of God how they are to pray and relate and engage and know their God. Not replacing the old Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but presented as a new one to complement that and understand this God more clearly. I think that's beautiful. I think that's incredible. Martin Luther called the, the Psalms a mini-Bible. And it's retelling the story of God. It's teaching the people of God how to pray and praise God in the midst of their place in his story. All the while looking ahead to the Messiah to deliver them in hope and faith. And this is our call today. To wait for the Messiah in hope and faith. To cling to the word of God. So if you're taking notes, the Psalms teach us about the story of God. And two, the Psalms teach us about the character of God. One thing that's important to remember, guys, about the book of Psalms is that it's poetry. I said something about that at the beginning. Maybe you're not convinced yet that you like poetry. Hopefully we'll get there. Um, but the Psalms are poetic in nature, which means it is meant to be read differently than other books of the Bible. So, for instance, Titus, what we just went to, was a letter from Paul to a guy named Titus. Go figure. And then what we went through before that was Judges, which was historical narrative. And you read those things differently. Uh, uh, Paul doesn't use poetry in writing letters to Titus. He's not writing haikus to Titus, giving him instructions on how to teach the church. Like, what are you talking about here, Paul? He doesn't even use uh, 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 the psalmist language using this kind of flower and colorful uh, language, if you will. Judges uses colorful language, if you know what I mean. But, uh, but, but he's not saying, in my anger and wrath, smoke is pouring out of my nostrils. Uh, Titus would be like, we need to call Luke, the doctor, up because you got something wrong when you get that checked out. He's not saying, he doesn't use language of my enemies surround me and I'm throwing flaming arrows at them. And it's like, what is going on? Like Legolas, Katniss Everdeen, what's going on here, Paul? You know, he's, it's, it's, and in the same way, the Psalms doesn't talk, they don't talk like Paul does. Um, if you notice, people don't write songs, let's say, about the last couple uh, verses of like Titus or Timothy. Because it's saying things like, don't forget my parchment. Bring my cloak for the winter. Prepare a guest room for me. Like, that's the worst song ever. Like, <laughs> prepare a guest room for me. Like, you know, I think it's the first time we've ever sang in a sermon. So, I don't know. There you go. Mark, mark your calendar. It happened. Um, but seriously, like, jokes aside, we, we get in this unique type of literature a unique angle on the character of God. It uses language that nowhere else in the Bible uses. So let me brag about our God from the Psalms. The Psalms describe our God as our salvation, our shield, our refuge and strength. God is declared to be our wise creator, our glorious king. He is our upright judge. He is on high, ruling, reigning, blessing the righteous. God is our strong fortress. He is our sure stronghold. He is our defender and our protector. He is our help. He is our joy. Psalm 1611 tells us, in your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. It says that God is our portion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Psalms 
Psalms tell us. He is our rock and our redeemer. The Psalms tell us that God is good and true and faithful and just. The God of the Bible, the God of the Psalms is Yahweh, Jehovah. He is the Lord of hosts. He is on high. The Psalms tell us that God does not change. He is glorious, that he is above all, that he knows everything, that he is everywhere. Where shall I go to escape your presence? If I ascend, if I descend, if I go to the ends of the earth, you are there. He hears. He is near. He moves. He acts. He speaks. He loves his people. He is our father. And we are his children, the Psalms say. He is our shepherd and he is our salvation. Amen? This is who our God is in the Psalms. But I'm not done bragging about him. The Psalms teach us that God cares about our troubles and that God hears our cries. That God is near to the brokenhearted. That he restores the downtrodden. The Psalms say that he's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender to the widow. He opens his hand to the hungry. He uplifts those with heavy loads. He is the forgiver of sin. But the psalmist is not in there. He says he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Using the most beautiful of language. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will preserve his people and overthrow the wicked. And the Psalms teach us that God loves, leads, and is with his people, even in the shadow of death, even in exile and torment and pain and isolation, in beauty and blessing, in trial and travail, God is there. And therefore, there is hope. Guys, if you want to know the character of God, look to the Psalms. They instruct us about who he is. And if you want to know the character of Jesus, look to the Psalms. See, Jesus loved the psalms. Jesus certainly sang the psalms. He anchored himself deeply into the psalms. See, Jesus quoted the psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament. In his death, Jesus quoted the psalms. In his moment of deepest possible pain, anguish, sorrow, and desperation, Jesus clung. He drew strength from, he believed, and he recited the psalms. At the Last Supper, Jesus almost certainly sang somewhere of Psalm 113 to 118, because that was the traditional hymns that they sang on the Passover meal. If you want to understand the heart of Jesus, read the Psalms. He knew them. He sang them. And maybe most importantly, Jesus believed the Psalms to be about him. Jesus believed the Psalms to be about him. Tim Keller explains... The Psalms were the songs Jesus sang since the Psalter, or the book of Psalms, was the Jewish hymn book. And also there are songs that point to Jesus as he himself believed. For example, he taught that he was the priest king of Psalm 110, the cornerstone of Psalm 118, the sufferer of Psalm 22. Guys, this is incredible. I think we can get so caught up 2,000 years later and be like, of course it's about Jesus. Like, can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine if next week when I'm leading music, I'm like, all right, guys, welcome to Redemption Tucson. Our call to worship this week is a song about me, and it's called Holy, Holy. <laughs> Dave would be running to the sound guy saying, cut the mic. Like, no, we're done. <laughs> like, here we go. Uh, like, 
Can you imagine, like, Jesus sitting around, and they're singing some psalm about the cornerstone. They're singing Psalm 118. And Peter's like, Jesus, why aren't you singing? He's like, I mean, it's about me. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like, put yourself there. That's crazy. Like, Jesus is in there in the corner, and he's like, I mean, should I sing to myself? Like, I mean, I'm right here. They're like, who are these psalms about? And he's like, you're looking at them. They're like, that's incredible. That's incredible. It's, it's ridiculous. Like, it's amazing. And this is who our God is. Astounding. Astounding. See, the psalms teach us about the character of God. They teach us about the story of God. And lastly, the psalms teach us how we're to relate with God. This is where I wanted to spend the majority of our time today, guys. The Psalms teach us how we are to relate with God. And I'm going to ask us this whole time to be really honest with ourselves and with where we're at. We don't know how to relate with God because we don't know God. Like, let the Psalms be our guide. I, I bragged about our God for a while. Get in there, dive in, learn, love the Psalms. But I think for most of us in the room, we don't know how to relate with God because we don't trust God. And also, we don't know how to relate with God because we don't trust God. I'm just going to ask you, what more could God possibly do to prove himself trustworthy? What more could God possibly do to prove himself true? Look around. Look at our created world and the beauty and majesty and organization and, 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 and power that is the created order and God made it. Look at yourself made in his image. Look around at the people made in God's image. And what did we do in response? We rebelled against God and said, thanks, but no thanks. Life is not found in you. It's found in apart from you. Life is not found under your authority, but apart from your authority. I am my own God declaring my own right from wrong. I will decide on who you are. And what does God do? Does he say, all right, we're done. I'm done with you. You are dead to me. No. God enters the story. And at great cost to himself. Dies the death we should have died. Lived the life we were meant to live. And gave the gift we could not earn. Life. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the, from the grave. We see that God entered the story. He got his hands dirty. What we see is that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and raises us to new life. And he changes us and changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and gives us new desires and commissions us into his mission. And he promises that one day he will make all things new and every enemy will be defeated. Satan, sin, and death will be no more. And we wait for that day. I, I just got to ask you, what, what more could God do? God has done everything possible to prove himself trustworthy and true. How do we know that God is trustworthy? Look at the bloody cross. Look at the empty tomb. God has kept his end of the deal. God has kept his word. He has pursued us to the end. He is faithful and we are faithless. God is trustworthy. And because of that, maybe we should be slower to critique uh, God's plans that he has orchestrated in our life. Because none of us would have planned up this story of his. <laughs> none of us had God dying in the way we wrote the story. So let's be a little slower to critique God in the story he draws up for us. Guys, I, I, I don't think we can say this enough. Like, this is true. Like, this story is true. It's not a myth 
Peter tells us we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. We told you what we saw. This is history. This is true. We can know God. We can draw near to God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We can relate with God because of Christ's death on our behalf. Yet because of these already but not yet times we live in, sin has been put to death on the cross, but it still is, is, is there. There's a residue of it in our hearts and we feel it. And there will come a day when he obliterates it and it will be gone. But we live in these already but not yet times. And so we have access to God, but we don't know how to relate with him because of sin. How we communicate and relate with God is prayer. It's prayer. Can I just ask, again, we're going to be honest. Anybody struggle with prayer in the room? Anybody? The rest of you are lying. Uh, or I want to talk to you. Uh, you got some secrets that I need to, I need to tap into here. Um, let the Psalms be our guide to prayer. See, all of church history has looked to the Psalms to teach the Christian how to pray and relate with God. John Calvin has an incredible quote. Check it out. John Calvin says this about the Psalms. Whatever may serve to encourage us when we're about to pray to God is taught us in this book. All right? Like, I'm listening. Um, whatever may serve to encourage us when we're about to pray to God is taught in this book. Should probably be in it. There is no other book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God. Tim Keller says, We are not simply to read the Psalms. We're to be immersed in them so that they profoundly shape how we are to relate to God. The Psalms are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to our God. That's really bold, powerful things to say. And guys, the Psalms teach us how to pray because it's a book of prayers. It's not a book about prayers. It's a book of prayers. And really, the book of Psalms can be broken up into two kind of grand chief categories of prayer. Uh, some of them might not fit in perfectly, but for the most part, all the Psalms can be put into two categories of prayer. Lament and praise. Lament and praise. And see, lament, we're going to start there is the act of crying out that things are not the way they ought to be. They are prayers of help, pleas of, of deliverance. They are prayers declaring grief over sin, anger over injustice. These are prayers that look out in the world and say, no, this is not the way it ought to be. And they're calling God to do something about it. And the Psalms are littered with these. I mean, full, stuffed of these. They, they ask with brutal honesty, the psalmist, way more honest than we're willing to be with God. They ask questions like, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy triumph? How long will you hide in days of trouble? We gotta be more honest. See, we learn from the Psalms that lament is an appropriate response to the evil and brokenness in the world. Lament is key to our relationship and how we relate with God. See, lament rightly recognizes that there's brokenness in the world. It rightly recognizes that things are not the way they ought to be. And lament rightly runs to the person who can do something about it, God. And lament boldly asks, which we as children of God should be all the more bold to run to our Father and say, act, I beg you, in accordance with your, with your character and your previous actions. God, will you do something about this? I can't manipulate God. Hear me. 
God is not a butler or a bellhop. He does not jump at a snap of my fingers in command. He does not exist to serve me. I exist to serve him. We exist to glorify and serve him. But I do know this. God hears and acts based on the prayers of his people. And that's a tension. And I don't have all the answers for it because God's smarter than me. And we gotta be honest. Some of, us are, some of us are liars in our prayers. As, as uh, Pastor Eric Mason said, who's shaped a lot of what I'm gonna say and says it better than I will. He says, some of us, some of us are hurting. Some of us are angry with God. Some of us are dying inside. And we come in these front doors and the people at the Connect desk say, how you doing? And you say, we're good. And you're lying. You were in the parking lot saying, just keep it together. We got to put on the faces, put on the masters, get through this. They can't know we're the family struggling with that. We're dying inside. This is killing us. This is killing you. Some of us are terrified to pray our unbelief to God. We need to echo, you need to echo the scriptures that say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Anybody there this morning? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We need to be honest. Are you afraid to be honest with God? Are you thinking that you need to protect God from your unbelief? Like you need to protect him and coddle him because it might scare him what's going on in your heart. Guess what? He already knows your unbelief. He knows it better than you do. He already knows your unbelief. When was the last time you vented to God? You cried out with the psalmist, how long? When was the last time you pleaded with him? You shared your anger. When was the last time you shared your unbelief? When was the last time you shared your confusion with tear-filled eyes, said, God, I'm hurting. You said, my marriage is falling apart, God. He said, said, I'm struggling. I feel alone. It sure looks like you're blessing everybody but me. You said, my family's sick and you can heal and you're not doing it. And I don't understand. God, when you did this, you could have made it stop and you did it and it hurt me. When's the last time you vented your confusion to God? You said, I don't understand you. God, I'm angry with you. I don't know what's going on with you. You are all powerful. Where were you? Tell him all about your anger and your unbelief. He can handle it. He can handle it. Guys, you can't miss this. Look at me. Our lament and our confession and our cry and our venting our unbelief to God does not end there. It does not end there. It needs to go there. Some of you need to go there but it does not end there. There is something deeper. There is something more true than our experiences and our emotions. It's the gospel. See, some of us, after all of that, where were you? I don't understand. I'm confused. need to say, yes, but I look to the cross and I know you are good. You need to say, God, I look to the cross and I know you can be trusted. I look at my life and I see no matter how dark, no matter how much pain, no matter how much brokenness, I see shreds of your goodness that I did not deserve. I see your protection and your provision. I see your protection and grace. I look at creation and know you are wiser than me, God. There is much I do not understand. God, I don't know why this is happening. 
but please make it pass. We need to stay with Jesus, but not my will, yours be done. And we need to know, despite our circumstances, despite our experiences, that God can be trusted. There's more going on that we don't see. His ways are above our ways. There are things he does we do not understand. The question is, do you think he's good? We need to cry out, God, I trust you. Help me to trust you more. We need to say, thank you, God, that, that you're with me and that my faith is not built around me clinging to you, but you clinging to me. And no matter how much I flail and thrash and say, no, God, you say I'm not letting you go. He says, I made a promise to you. I adopted you and you are forever my son or daughter. There's nothing you can do to separate me uh, from you, from my love, from you. And we know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And how do we know the cross and the empty tomb? We can know that God loves us. No matter how angry or confused or doubting we are, we need to preach to ourselves something more true than our experiences. And it's the gospel. We have to. That lament needs to turn into preaching to ourselves. And guys, some of us need to do that today. We're going to eventually respond, and there's going to be people in the back. And some of you need to go back there and vent to God. Some of you need to shed some tears. Some of you need to, need to share with God what's going on. And you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to preach to yourself something that's going on. And you need to tell God how, how you're feeling. And preach to yourself something truer than what you're feeling. There's going to be people in the back. They want to do that with you. Some of you need to go there. And some of us, in contrast to lament, need to praise we need to, we need to do, do prayers that erupt in hallelujah, prayers that erupt in praise be to our God. Blessed be the God of Israel forever and ever. Amen. Prayers declaring how majestic and glorious and how beautiful and awesome our God is. See, these are prayers that look out in the world and say, God, you are good. I see your goodness impressed upon it. Some of us are far too cynical and we need to be better at praising and being thankful. Some of us are very, very well versed in complaining and not very good in thanking God. Look at your life. Look at what God has done. Look at how faithful he has been in all of history and all of your life. You have much to praise God for, much to be thankful to God for. See, the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says, says, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. You're smart who gave you that mind. You, you are strong who gave you that strength. You were born into the church and you've only known Jesus in your whole life. You have lived a life where, where, where you have not experienced these things. Who allowed you to be born in that type of protection? Did you choose to be born where you were born? Of course not. You could have been born 500 years ago in Siberia or Sudan, being ignorant to the ways of God. But God was gracious to you and good to you. And protected you from so much. We have so much to be thankful to our God for. And he says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Christian should be the most thankful person in the world. Literally everything you have, and I mean everything, is a gift of grace that it, because we deserve death and separation from God's love. So if you're experiencing anything other than death and separation from God's love, you're experiencing God's grace. 
Every breath that you just took in these last five seconds was a gift of God. See, see, every meal, every glimpse and experience of joy and justice and peace and comfort and love, we did not deserve. It is a gift and it is grace and it should cause us to erupt in praise with the psalmist, saying, how gracious and good are you, God, to let me have this. Lament and praise. And in closing, guys, it's very interesting. Again, the structure of psalms is profound. It's very interesting that the book of Psalms transitions from lament to praise. See, the book of Psalms is organized in such a way that the majority of the lament prayers and songs and poems are towards the front of the book. And there's praise sprinkled in. But as you transition, it shifts to a majority of praise psalms with lament sprinkled in. And this teaches us something profound about the nature of prayer. And it's actually what this piece of art is communicating. That transition from lament to praise. From how long, O Lord, to hallelujah. See, this transition from lament to praise teaches us something critical about the, nation's, the, the nature of prayer. See, as we look around the world, we cannot help but see the brokenness. We cannot help but see things are not the way they ought to be and it forces us to run to the God who can do something about it. And as we run and beg him to do something about it, we remember his past actions to us, his past actions in history, and his promised future deliverance and action. And what does that, ha what does that do in us? It causes that lament to roll up into praise. See? This transition from lament to praise is future-oriented and God-centered. When we look ahead to the final day, we know that the Lord's anointed, we know that the Messiah has, has saved us and he will make all things new. He will complete his salvation. And we look at the trials of today and we can know that this is not the end of the story. We can say with the psalmist that we are but a vapor. We are here today and God tomorrow. But God and his kingdom and his people, his restored world and his word endures forever. We can look at the cross. We can look at the empty tomb. And we can look at Revelation 21 and see the city descending. And we can know God is good. We can know that he is trustworthy and that lament turns into praise. It has to. When it's future-oriented and God-centered, our prayers will erupt into praise. This faith and hope, guys, this, this meditation on the word and this longing for the Messiah, this, this, this lament and praise of prayers and songs and, and poems is, is what the book is all about. This is what the book of Psalms is all about. And I'm excited to spend the summer in it. I'm excited about the idea of it shaping us to that end. I pray we have a deeper hunger for the book of Psalms and I pray that we will go and be more honest with our God and preach the gospel to ourselves. Let me pray. God, you are good. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are awesome. God, you are near. You are our Father. God, the book of Psalms is beautiful, it's glorious, it teaches us something about your story and about your character and how we are to relate with you. And God, I pray that we'd be honest. 
I pray that in our lamenting, we would be honest and that we would, we would share with you our confusion, our frustration, and our anger. And that we'd preach to ourselves, though, something more true than even that. The God would say, oh, figure it out, but you pursued us. You entered into the story. You saved us. God, help us to respond now. Help us to know how to respond to you. Lord, thank you for the people who wrote this book inspired by your spirit and the people who organized it in such a way to teach us some profound stuff. We love you because you first loved us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.